China and the Final Frontier, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Andrew Jones is back. Our treasured contributing editor will share all of the challenges China has taken on from a space station in low Earth orbit to beyond Pluto. Well, not everything, because as you'll hear from Andrew, the Middle Kingdom has far more underway than we have time for. We'll also visit with Jason Davis. The Society's editorial director introduces the June solstice edition of the Planetary Report. Later on, one of you is going to win delicious ice cream and a spoon to eat it with. What more could you ask for? Well, how about Asteroid Day? It arrives on the 30th of June, just as it does every year. But the celebration is already underway. Our boss, the science guy, is part of it. You can learn more at asteroidday.org. Remember, the planet you save may be your own. Speaking of celebrations, if you are catching this week's Plan Rad right away, you might still be able to join Bill Nye, Bruce Betts, Jennifer Vaughn, LightSail Project Manager Dave Spencer, and me as we mark a year of sailing on the light of the sun. The live webcast starts Thursday, June 25th at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 11 p.m. UT. You can register free at planetary.org through the link to the LightSail Extended Mission Coverage. The show will be available on demand soon after. Just time for one headline from the latest edition of the Downlink. A NASA rover called Viper will head for the moon's South Pole next year, hitching a ride on an astrobotic lander. Some of you remember my conversation with astrobotic CEO John Thornton last August. There's much more waiting for you at planetary.org downlink, including NASA's appeal to citizen scientists who want to help curiosity drive across Mars. Jason Davis is one of those who makes sure the downlink is available every week. He's also behind the award-winning quarterly magazine from the Planetary Society, and he's ready to take us into the brand new edition. Jason, beautiful edition of the Planetary Report. So uh, congrats and thanks to you and everybody else on our team who worked on this. I guess the centerpiece, uh, and it is very appropriate, is this Pictures of Earth article, which is loaded with these remarkable images of Earth, which are are just stare-worthy. <laughs> There's a new term. You told me moments ago that uh, it might not have been this planet that uh, got the focus this, uh, this quarter. Yeah, when we were doing our long-term planning for what was going to be in this issue, we had initially wanted to feature Mars because, you know, we knew it was going to come out uh, right now, like mid to late June. And of course, next month, uh, we have three new Mars missions launching, and that's very exciting. And we're going to be talking a lot about that. But because this is a print uh, magazine, we plan the content a couple months ahead of time. So we were doing the initial planning uh, of the Mars feature in March, and that was the time the pandemic was really ramping up. Um, we didn't know, and we, in many ways, we still don't know here in June, um, how bad it was going to get um, exactly what life was going to look like in two months when this magazine came out. We didn't want to just drop a giant Mars issue without acknowledging what was going on in the world today. And of course, now, uh, since then, we have more going on in the world today. Uh, with with all the things happening surrounding the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. 
but yeah, so we we decided let's let's swap out the Mars feature. We can put that online, uh, and we have. If you go to planetary.org/mars2020, uh, we got all our Mars content there. Uh, and instead, we were like, let's just feature some pretty pictures of Earth from space. Um, that's one of our favorite things to do here at the Planetary Society, anyway. So um, I hope our uh, our readers enjoy the pictures. We sure had fun picking them out. I sure am enjoying them. From from this first, <laughs> it you could barely even call it monochrome image from a surveyor moon lander of Earth. I mean, it's just gorgeous. I mean, and, and it includes very appropriately the pale blue dot image from uh, 1990 Voyager 1, which uh, seems even more appropriate in light of those other incentives that uh, that you were talking about. The other main piece in this, I guess, is this nice article by our colleague, planetary evangelist Emily about sample return. Yeah, yeah. So we, we went ahead and uh, ran her sample return roundup article as planned for our second feature. And uh, this is a look uh, at all the different sample return missions that are in progress. It's kind of remarkable what is going on right now in terms of bringing samples back. We have Japan's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft, which is on its way back to Earth right now. I believe it's uh, December. It's still on schedule to return those samples. We have OSIRIS-REx, which is going to be collecting its first sample uh, a little later this year. Perseverance, uh, NASA's Perseverance rover is launching to Mars next month, and that'll be the first step in uh, bringing a sample back from Mars. The fourth mission is China's Chang'e 5. Um, that's going to land on the near side of the moon and bring a sample back to Earth. The last we heard, I believe that's now shifted to early next year. But anyway, an exciting time uh, if you're a scientist or someone who's interested in uh, studying rocks from other places in the solar system. Stay tuned for a second mention of Chang'e 5 from our uh, main guest this week, Andrew Jones, when we talk to him about the Chinese space program in a moment. There is so much more in this edition of the Planetary Report, all available to everyone for free in digital format at uh, planetary.org. Of course, members of the Planetary Society will receive the printed version, which is in my hot little hands right now. There's just one more thing to mention here because it's just, it's so touching to see this. Uh, and it's a page by Carl Sagan. Uh, not the first time it's been in the Planetary Report. Yeah, yeah. So we have an essay from the September 96 issue by Carl describing why Mars. That's the title of the article, Why Mars? It's interesting. You know, we've been um, building out a lot of new resources on our website explaining why we're so interested in destinations like Mars. That's a question we've asked ourselves a lot in preparing some of these new materials is why go to Mars in the first place? What's the motivation? What are we trying to discover? What are scientists trying to learn? And, uh, you know, in looking back, we here we have this uh, great essay from Carl himself laying out the reasons why Mars exploration is important. So I hope readers enjoy that little uh, look back as well. His arguments hold up very well. And of course, he, he describes them as um, as only Carl could. And it's introduced by, I, I don't think you ever got to work with her, but Charlene Anderson, the original associate director of the Planetary Society. It's great to see her byline once again in the Planetary Report, the magazine that she was responsible for, for, uh, for many, many years. Thank you for the preview, Jason. I, I hope folks will, uh, will take a look. It's well worth it. Thanks, Matt. Always fun to be here. If there's a single lesson to learn from my recent conversation with Andrew Jones, it's that no one should doubt China's determination to explore the solar system and develop space resources. Andrew's network of resources and contacts often reveals more about Chinese plans and projects 
than you can hear anywhere else, including from China's various agencies and organizations that are part of its progress. It's all the more amazing that he is able to do this work from his home outside Helsinki in Finland. I caught him there a few days ago between assignments for the Planetary Society, Space News, and others. Andrew, welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm sorry to say it has been a little bit over a year since we last checked in with you about what's going on with the Chinese space program. I think it's probably safe to say there is a lot going on. It has been and and more to come. (laughs) Once again, welcome. Well, thanks very much, Matt. It's great to be back. Yeah, indeed. As you say, it's about a year and a bit, and it feels like a decade, both in space and uh, (laughs) loads going on. Let's start, because it's so timely, with a a question about the recent success of DEMO-2, the Crew Dragon uh, mission that carried uh, those two astronauts to the ISS, where they're going to be living for the next number of weeks. Did this generate any reaction in China that, that you're aware of? I don't think there was any uh, official reaction in the sense of the foreign ministry, for example. I don't think I saw any question posed to them in which they'd give an answer. However, some of the space organizations, such as the China Human Spaceflight Agency, they ran some articles in Chinese explaining in great depth what was going on and, and how important this was. I think there was a lot of people following in China. So it did generate a lot of interest, but not an official reaction, if that makes any sense. I read something from you, though, about possibly three private companies in China, I assume, who want to launch astronauts, much as as SpaceX has now successfully done. That's right. China now has this nascent but very active commercial sector, which involves um, some private companies. Some of these companies are involved in developing their own launch vehicles. Now, From what I saw, there were at least three of these who stated that, as well as actually getting to orbit first, they are looking long-term into launching astronauts. That's something which is very much what the the state-run space programs take care of. So this would probably be tourism-related. There were a number of companies, I think iSpace was one, Galactic Energy, another, and another called Space Trek. Ah. Yeah, so they've really <laughs> taken the inspiration from, from somewhere. They've stated that, yes, they're working on light and medium lift launch vehicles, but also have an interest in sending astronauts into space. So those comments started appearing around the time of of this mission. So while I say there wasn't an official reaction to the Demo 2 mission, it's actually because of SpaceX and other companies that China has taken the decision to open up its space sector to private investment and private companies. Back in late 2014, there was a government decision that the small satellites sector and launch vehicle sector could be open to this other activity. That's because they noticed what was going on with SpaceX, Blue Origin, Planet Labs. While reusability is probably one thing which everyone looks at and think, wow, these countries are going to have to catch up with SpaceX in America. It's more than that. So there are launch companies which get a lot of attention in China and what they're doing. And certainly it's very exciting to follow these. But it's also about creating new supply chains, about lowering costs and driving innovation in the way in which the the state-run space sector wasn't able to do or wouldn't be efficiently able to do. So 
what we're seeing in China with this new activity is very much inspired by the success of U.S. space policy and efforts to commercialize space activities. That's quite fascinating. I mean, the parallels between uh, the rise of uh, commercial cargo and crew in the United States and now on to getting things to the moon. I guess Elon can take some credit for what's happening over there. Oh, absolutely. When I've spoken to some of these people involved in these companies, I mean, they they were watching these companies. And as soon as the chance was available, they were like, okay, we're going to leave our jobs at these state-owned space enterprises and start our own initiatives. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. In the next few months, uh, Galactic Energy, which is one of the newer or kind of second wave of launch vehicle companies, they're going to attempt their first orbital launch with a, a solid rocket. That's going to be called Series 1. So that's something to, to look out for. There's been three companies which have attempt, in China which have uh, attempted to, to reach orbit. The first two with land space and one space failed, but iSpace last July succeeded. Speaking of iSpace and land space, they're two companies to watch out for because they are developing liquid methane and liquid oxygen launch vehicles, just like Blue Origin and SpaceX are. They are looking to launch maybe in the first half of next year. So we might see Chinese companies with the first Methalox rockets, which would be quite something. I mean, they've started long, a long way behind, but uh, in, in some aspects, in some respects, they're able to, to catch up, even though they're going to be light to medium lift launch vehicles. You know, I was only in China once. I may have mentioned this to you before. It was back in 1988, so almost prehistoric in terms of the developments that have taken place there. But one of the impressions that I was left with is how amazingly entrepreneurial the Chinese people are at every level, whether it's at the level of a street vendor or apparently we're now seeing in the area of commercial space development. I mean, do you see that? I think that's uh, an observation a lot of people will take from from a visit to China. In the West, we have a lot of preconceptions about what China would be like from the coverage that we receive and, and so on. To actually go there is, is quite something else. I, it's exactly right. I, I couldn't agree more. And and I want to go back, except that the next time, I, th- I think I want to go with you. <laughs> okay. That, yeah, that, we have to do that. Let's turn away, at least for a little while, because we're going to come back to Earth orbit and look toward Mars. Of course, We have been providing lots of coverage of what is coming up this summer. We have given China some attention with uh, its mission, which will be launching in that same window as Perseverance, the the former 2020 Mars rover from NASA. Tell us about this this very ambitious uh, trip that uh, China hopes to make to Mars. Well, this is going to be a very big step for China in its space ambitions. While NASA makes these... Mars landings seem almost uh, quotidian, or, you know, at least every 26 months or something. I mean, NASA's been tremendously successful. But this is going to be a big challenge in a number of ways for, for China. If we, if we go back to, I think it was 2011, China actually had a first Mars probe launched, and that was piggybacking on the, the Russian Phobos-Grunt mission, which was it was aiming at least to collect samples from Phobos and bring them back to Earth, which would have been a tremendous mission. Unfortunately, it didn't leave Earth orbit and re-entered within a month or something like this. So we're nine years down the line and China is now in a position to actually launch its own mission. So they've developed a new heavy lift launch vehicle, which will be launching this, this mission. 
They have ground stations, which will be capable of supporting deep space missions, not just in China, but then they have support in Argentina and Namibia. They've landed on the moon twice, once on the far side. So they've gained experience in propulsion and carrying out these uh, maneuvers away from the Earth. Also, just in terms of developing spacecraft and the GNC and everything that's needed, um, they've had to kind of adapt the parachute technology which they developed for the Shenzhou human spacecraft, uh, human spaceflight missions, to help slow down the spacecraft making a entry into the Martian atmosphere. So there's many different aspects in which China's really made big developments over the last over the last decade, and now they're ready to to make this mission. So. They have engineering goals, simply getting to Mars, getting an orbiter into orbit, and then attempting the the uh, entry, descent, and landing, which is the, the hardest part. Also, something not to be taken for granted, but also developing the science expertise, developing the, the human expertise to, to manage these to manage these missions and, and carry them out. So all, all of these are big efforts, big endeavors in, in their own right. So China's putting all of these together. The latest on the mission is that in April, they gave a name to the mission, which will be called uh, Tianwen-1, which means asking the heavens, which comes from a, a poem from a famous ancient poet called Chu Yuan. This will be the first mission in a larger planetary exploration of China, as it's, as it's called. The spacecraft was delivered, I think, in April or March or April to the Wanchang Space, Space Launch Center in southern China, and the launch vehicle, the Long March 5, was delivered, I think it was 23rd or 24th of May. So China hasn't actually said when they're going to launch. We're assuming the the launch window is going to be similar to the Perseverance launch window. Um, based on previous activity, the Long March 5 has taken about two months to, to get ready before launch, so a two-month launch campaign. So looking at the date that that arrived, we're looking at around July 23, maybe, for the, for the launch, depending on, on weather and how, how things go. It's secretive. Not all the details are, are out, but, um, but slowly, slowly we're learning more. That's my guest, Andrew Jones. Still ahead is his description of a proposed Chinese mission that may follow in the footsteps of Voyager. We'll be right back. Greetings, Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society. Even with everything going on in our world right now, I know that a positive future is ahead of us. Space exploration is an inherently optimistic enterprise. An active space program raises expectations and fosters collective hope. As part of the Planetary Society team, you can help kickstart the most exciting time for U.S. space exploration since the moon landings. With the upcoming election only months away, our time to act is now. You can make a gift to support our work. Visit planetary.org advocacy. Your financial contribution will help us tell the next administration and every member of Congress how the U.S. space program benefits their constituents and the world. Then you can sign the petitions to President Trump and presumptive nominee Biden and let them know that you vote for space exploration. Go to planetary.org advocacy today. Thank you. Let's change the world. That rocket, the Long March 5, uh, that has literally been a long march toward getting this rocket uh, functional again, hasn't it? Absolutely. So this Long March 5 is China's largest launch vehicle by far. It depended on developing new propulsion. So they, so China developed 
Kerolox rocket engines to power this. And this was a project which was started in the 2000s and suffered a few delays. I think it was late 2016 when there was the first mission, which wasn't completely smooth, but successful. However, the next launch in July 2017 failed to reach orbit. There was a problem with one of the first stage engines and it, the, the rocket failed to reach orbital velocity and the mission was lost. Actually discovering what the, the issue was took a long time. It turned out there was a turbo pump issue and I think they went through at least two rounds of attempting to fix this problem. They were apparently close to sending along March 5 to the launch center early in 2019. And then another issue was found. So they kind of back to the drawing board. But I think it was over 900 days between the second Long March 5 failure and getting the third Long March 5 in late December 2019 to actually get it back on the pad and get it flying. Now, fortunately for China, that mission went very well. And that opened up two possibilities immediately. The one would be the Mars mission, which they had planned since 2016 to launch in, in 2020. So if the Long March 5 failed in December, then you know we wouldn't be talking about this Mars mission. The other thing is that it allowed them to test uh, a variant, the Long March 5B, which is designed to send modules of around 20, 22 metric tons to low Earth orbit. This mission went ahead in May and was successful, meaning that China can now, probably in early 2021, start launching the, the modules for its planned modular space station. And that is going to be quite an accomplishment. Before we go on, um, you said Kerolox. Does that mean kerosene and liquid oxygen? It does, yes. Okay, just wanted to clarify. How do the Long March 5 and the 5B, how do those compare with, let's say, the Space Launch System, that uh, super heavy lift uh, vehicle that the United States is slowly developing? Yeah, the Long March 5 is uh, much smaller. So I think it would be comparable to, in, in, in terms of um, payload capacity, it's comparable to, say, the Atlas V or the, the Delta IV Heavy. Ah, okay, got it. But big enough, obviously, because getting 20 or 22 metric tons at a time up into low Earth orbit is, is pretty impressive. Let's follow up with that space station. It is an ambitious plan. And, and there, aren't they hoping for international involvement, just like the other one that is literally called the International Space Station? Yes, there is a, a level of international cooperation already. So China's embarking on, on this, this project of its own because it is excluded from the ISS. So China initially mm. in 1992, when it decided to launch a, a human spaceflight project, it envisaged constructing a small space station of its own in low Earth orbit. However, there was the impression that having demonstrated in 2003 onwards that China could launch astronauts itself, that perhaps it could gain entry into the uh, the ISS program. However, that didn't happen. So China's going alone with this space station. However, in cooperation with the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs, there was a call for international experiments to fly to the, to the space station. This will probably take place after the construction's finished, so 2024, 
2023-2024 probably but there was a, num a number of experiments I think around 17 if I remember correctly experiments from around the world Europe Africa and, and, and elsewhere which will be part of a, a first round of missions so this is kind of similar to what Japan did with its uh, Kibo cube in terms of hosting missions from um, other countries have you heard any discussion of uh, possibly uh, international astronauts or taikonauts uh, going to this new space station? I have. There's two different possible activities which have been mentioned. The first is that, and this has been known for quite a few years, that um, a number of European Space Agency astronauts are learning Chinese. And a couple of these, uh, Matthias Maurer and um, Samantha Cristoforetti, they actually mm. went to China to participate in sea survival training two or three years ago. So they've been working closely, well, occasionally, I should say, doing exchanges in terms of astronaut training and so on. And the idea would be that sometime well after the space station has been established, maybe at the end of this decade, around there, that one or two ESO astronauts could make a visit to the Chinese space station. So that's something that both sides are, are looking at. And it would take some years to kind of iron out all the details, but that's something that they're looking at. The other thing that's been mentioned but seems much more speculative is Pakistan stated that it was aiming to send an astronaut, a Pakistani astronaut, on a Chinese mission. But that's something that I've only heard from, from the Pakistan side and haven't seen it confirmed by the Chinese side. But it's another, I think that's another thing to, to look for because China has its Belt and Road project. Yes. Which has various um, commercial and geopolitical ramifications. So that could be something that they would look to in the future, perhaps. So interesting. The other thing that's worth noting about this uh, Long March 5B mission, so primarily they were looking to verify that this rocket can launch these 20-ton payloads to low Earth orbit. What they used as an analog payload for a Chinese space station module was actually a prototype of a new generation crewed spacecraft. Wow. So this was an uncrewed test flight for a new spacecraft, which will have two different variants. One would be for low Earth orbit, which could take six to seven astronauts to the, the space station. The other, and this is the, the one they, they tested, would be larger and would be capable of traveling to the moon and back. So it would be able to handle the harsher radiation environment and also the much more energetic re-entry coming back from the moon much faster than you would as you do from LEO. So that was apparently very successful. So this new heat shielding which they developed worked, as far as we can tell. It handled something like 3,000 degrees Celsius during the, the re-entry. So that is an indication of not just China's plans to send astronauts to, to low Earth orbit, but also looking further ahead, actually going to the moon. I am not a bit surprised. Uh, how interesting. It sounds like this new capsule... This new spaceship is uh, uh, has elements of both Crew Dragon and uh, the Boeing CST-100 Starliner and NASA's Orion, which uh, has yet to carry humans. Uh, we're still hoping that'll happen uh, next year in 2021. 
The word fascinating just keeps coming back. So you have brought us back to the moon, and China is continuing its notable successes there with robotic exploration. Uh, Chang'e 3, Chang'e 4, still active. The U-22 rover uh, just woke up again, didn't it, for another day of work on the on the moon, one of those two-week-long days. It's apparently now lunar day 19, which is very hard to to get my head around. It seemed like a few weeks ago that this thing actually landed in von Karman crater. Yeah, it's it's been a tremendous success. I think they were looking at a lifetime of three Earth months for the rover, and now we're well over a year and a half, I think, around about now, 500 mm. days. And so um, the lander had a design lifetime of one year, and that's still going strong. And so are its science payloads, as far as we can tell. But I think that's not actually a surprise because the, the Chang'e 3 lander, that still wakes up, apparently. There are amateur or radio enthusiasts who pick, who pick up the signals from Chang'e 3 still. When did this launch? Late 2013? And it's still going. So hmm. if you go on Twitter and search for Chang'e 3, you'll see that these, these guys are um, picking up signals showing that it's still going. It's, it's quite amazing to think that that's, that's still, still running. It sure is. Uh, what's next for China on the moon? So next up, and this is assuming that the Mars mission goes well, I think between October, December, the next mission for the Long March 5 will be the Chang'e 5 mission, which is going to be a very complex and very ambitious mission to collect samples from the moon and bring them back to Earth. So this is the, the next stage in the Chinese lunar exploration program. What this is going to do is collect, I think they're aiming for between one and two kilograms of samples from, I think the site is near Mons Rumpke in Oceanus Procellarum. This is going to be the first sample return since the 1970s. So, of course, the Apollo missions brought back a tremendous amount of uh, lunar material. The Russian lunar missions, I think the last one was 1976, that brought back material as well. That mission involved a direct return. So the spacecraft landed, scooped up some material, and headed straight back to Earth. The Chang'e 5 mission is going to be more complex. It's going to involve landing on the moon and then scooping up the material into an ascent vehicle. And that is going then to head back into lunar orbit and rendezvous with the service module for coming back to the Earth. Then there will be a transfer to a return capsule and the service module will release that before arriving at the Earth. What we're looking at there, it's kind of like um, a practice of the Apollo mission profile. Uh. So it looks like, okay, they want to do a, a lunar sample return, which obviously has tremendous scientific value, but also looks like it's practicing again for eventually maybe in the 2030s, sending astronauts to the moon and bringing them back. That mission is going to be very, very interesting. I'll say. Before we finish, I cannot resist bringing up something else that I discovered uh, in your writing. And that was just a brief mention that uh, China has successfully tested, or, or a company in China maybe, successfully tested a drag sale. And I, I was, I had to bring it up because, of course, it came up on our last week's show, where we talked about LightSail, Dave Spencer, the project manager for LightSail 2, mentioned this concept of a drag sail and, and how it may be useful in deorbiting satellites uh, in Earth orbit. 
Can you tell us a little bit about this test and and, and what it may mean for uh, China and and commercial development, possibly, but I guess beyond that? I can talk about it, but only very briefly because there's so much going on that I was <laughs> basically, I was able to kind of scan this article, which uh, was put out by a company called Space Tea, which is based in Hunan province in, in China. And they're, they're a private company, which is somewhat, I don't know if attached is the right word, to the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Hmm. Uh, personnel came from the Chinese Academy of Sciences and brought some satellite expertise. So at the moment, they don't have their own constellation plans, but what they do is providing services to, to customers. A lot of their satellites are technology verification satellites. And this one was, I think, Xiaoxiang 1 brackets 03. One part of the mission was to deploy a small drag sail to in, in, increase the, the surface area of the, the spacecraft and lower the density and basically take some of the orbital lifetime from the spacecraft. So according to the, this article, which is in Chinese, but there are lots of data showing what they've done and, and how um, why they think this is successful and all the different variables, in, including um, solar activity, which they've taken into consideration. So it seems like on one hand, that there are commercial companies in China who are interested in these kinds of technologies. And also they did, the same company did a, a collaborative test with a French startup, which they were testing solid iodine thrusters, which can be used for station keeping or then deorbiting as well. So that can, again, reduce lifetime. So th this this tells us that uh, there's companies in China who are looking at these kinds of issues and that they're considering the issue of space debris very seriously, which is good because I think the, the, the um, Starlink satellites that SpaceX have been putting up, they've been getting a lot of attention in terms of the effect on astronomy, the effect on debris in in Leo, but there are Chinese, a lot of Chinese companies which have plans to launch 5G constellations or remote sensing constellations involving lots of satellites. So this is also being considered in China, I think is, is, is good news. Yeah, our crowded skies becoming uh, ever more crowded, uh, particularly with these new constellations. All right, let's wrap up with a review, an update on something you wrote about for the Planetary Society back in November of 2019. And it is impossible to read about this, this mission, at least a mission proposal by, by China, uh, without thinking of Voyager 1 and 2. Tell us about this. Well, this, this is November. I'm trying to think. That's, a, that's like, that is like a decade ago, considering <laughs> everything that's going on. But, but yeah, so there's, um, there's a proposal in which... I think it was Peking University, the, the the PI or one of the project leaders or one of the project advocates, perhaps, has laid out a, a plan to send two probes, one to the head of the solar system and one to the tail. The idea would be to examine the, the heliopause and the um, termination shock and these different parts of the solar system and answer a number of questions which have been raised by Voyager missions and, and other observations. And just to, to follow up and bring more understanding, it would involve magnetometers. There was something about 
not cosmic rays, but something called anomalous cosmic rays, which was somehow particles being accelerated when they enter the solar system. Seriously, writing the article was really eye-opening because there's so much going on at the edge of the solar system where (laughs) you would think there's nothing. But yeah, it's fascinating. This would involve a number of flybys. So unlike the voyages, so there was no kind of grand tour kind of possibilities because that was taking advantage of some kind of lineup of the planets, which only happens every century and a half or something like this. However, one plan they had within this um, vision for the the mission was a Neptune flyby and releasing an impactor and observing, I was going to say the impacts of the impact, but I can't say that. (laughs) And observing what happens when this small impactor interacts with the Neptunian atmosphere. So they're trying to get as much as they can out of out of this proposal. So as I understand, this is still a proposal, but um, China often works in something called five-year plans. And so next year, we may find out whether or not this mission gets the go-ahead. Now, the fact that this has been talked about somewhat is a good sign. The other mission, which I think has had a bit of a boost in terms of an announcement from the China National Space Administration was this um, asteroid sample return and comet flyby, which is tentatively called Zhenghe after was it 14th century admiral. So that that is another very fascinating and complex mission which China is is looking looking to carry out. So without even going into the other plans China has for the South Pole of the Moon, starting maybe 2023, 2024, mm. there's so much going on big ambitions and a lot of complexity. Really, it's a very exciting time to follow what's going on in China. Which is proof that we should check in with you more frequently, I think, Andrew. Um, if we didn't mention it, this this mission, which is currently being considered to uh, the edge of the heliosphere, the, the termination shock, uh, is the interstellar heliosphere probe and two of them, IHP 1 and 2, like Voyager 1 and 2, even though these are going to go in opposite directions. I also saw that you noted, just by coincidence, if these spacecraft launch when they hope to launch them, uh, when everything lines up properly, uh, and I think 2024, your piece said, they would reach about 100 AU astronomical units from Earth at just about the time of the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic in 2049. Pure coincidence may be helpful for your uh, mission proposal, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, this has been delightful and eye-opening. We really must do this again. And I'm going to look for cheap airfare to China so that uh, we can make our trip there. I Seriously, I have wanted for years to go there. If it can be done and give us some uh, entree to at least some of what uh, China is up to in low Earth orbit and beyond, Uh, because it is up to a lot, as you've made clear, and it would be a very exciting trip. Absolutely. That would be fascinating. Yeah, I think we could pick a conference or maybe um, at this new coastal launch site, they have a uh, a Hilton Hotel, which kind of overlooks the launch site. So if 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 you can time things well, you can maybe book yourself into the hotel at around about the time something interesting would be happening. All right. It's a date. Andrew, (laughs) thanks again. Thank you for sharing your expertise. And uh, I'm so glad that you are monitoring all of this 
for uh, all of us at the Planetary Society and Planetary Radio and uh, the other outlets that uh, you share this with. Thanks, Matt. It's a, a pleasure and an honor to uh, to chat with you and uh, and to just, just talk about space. <laughs> it's fun, isn't it? That's, that's what makes my job so fun, getting to talk to folks like you. Andrew Jones, he's a contributing editor for the Planetary Society. You can read his stuff at planetary.org. But he also writes for Space News, an absolutely wonderful outlet that uh, so many great space experts write for, space journalists. Uh, he's based in Finland, and that's where we talked to him today at his home outside of Helsinki. He tweets a lot from at AJ underscore FI. Highly recommended. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. If you were listening last week, you also know that he's the program manager for our light sail program. Uh, but he's uh, he's back just to look up at the night sky and all the other fun stuff we do at the end of the show this week. Welcome. Do you remember two weeks ago you talked about Vanguard 1, oldest human-made object in space? Still in space, yes. Exactly. Patrick Wiggins, actually a NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador in Utah, that program that JPL runs. Uh, he says, Bruce was one-third right. <laughs> also up there is the third stage of the rocket that put Vanguard 1 in orbit, along with what is called a piece of debris that is associated with the launch. He says, by the way, since Vanguard 1 and its third stage can get as bright as magnitude 10, they could be seen with pretty small telescopes. And he even, Patrick, included uh, images that he had gotten of them uh, going across the sky. He adds, great job as always on the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. That's a good point. And I try to say the oldest human-made spacecraft, but I get sloppy sometimes. So good point, space junk. Cool. Yeah, but you weren't wrong. That's the important thing. I'm never wrong, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm just temporarily off <laughs> the perfect line. What's not wrong about the night sky? There's so much not wrong about the night sky. In the evening sky, coming up at the around the 11 p.m., 2300 kind of time, uh, we've got Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter looking really bright over there in the east, brighter than any of the stars, and Saturn hanging out to its left, looking bright and yellowish. July 4th, they will be lined up nicely with the moon, and July 5th, the moon will be between them. A nearly full moon will make a lovely sight. And a couple of hours later, Mars comes up in the east, as things have want to do, looking reddish and brightening over time. In the pre-dawn east, we've got Venus looking super bright. Interesting thing to look for over the next few weeks is the brightest star in Taurus, Aldebaran, uh, is below Venus right now. Venus is still quite low to the horizon, so you, you need a pretty clear view. But it, you can also, if you get that view, see Aldebaran, and the two of them will close and get closer over the next couple of weeks and then switch places. Now, Aldebaran, although a bright star, Venus is still about 100 times brighter. Hmm. Good fireworks coming for the 4th of July. Ah, yes. On to this week in space history. We have quite the mix of things. Uh, let's start with remembering the Soyuz 11 crew who uh, passed away in 1971 during re-entry mm. from their mission. And going back to 1908, the Tunguska impactor 
exploded over Tunguska in Siberia. And as far as we know, did not kill any humans, but sure could have because it leveled a forest the size of about one and a half times the size of the city of Los Angeles. So you remember that with Asteroid Day and Asteroid Week, we've got a lot of materials on our website. Go to planetary.org slash defense if you are interested in learning more. And then in 1995, STS-71 Space Shuttle mission did the first docking of the space shuttle with the uh, Mir space station. So the first docking since Apollo Soyuz uh, about 20 years before that, which we may discuss momentarily. Hmm. We move on to random space fact. (laughs) Well, that's not wrong. (laughs) So, uh, Apologies to those who may have seen this on my social media for uh, Father's Day, but I thought it was so interesting. I'd bring it back. The first father and son to both have flown in space were cosmonauts Alexander and Sergei Volkov. What I find particularly interesting is on his first mission, Sergei, the son, returned to Earth from the International Space Station with the second son of a space traveler to fly Mm. in space, space tourist Richard Garriott son of astronaut Owen Garriott, and they came back on the same Soyuz after uh, Sergei Volkov had been up in space for several months and Garriott a few days as a space tourist. That is so interesting. I did not see that in your social media. And of course, I would have said the Garriotts. I did not know about this cosmonaut pair. Yeah, it was close. So both uh, both Alexander and Sergei had uh, long careers uh, doing all sorts of stuff. Sergei commanding... Um, being on multiple expeditions to the International Space Station. Well, speaking of astronauts with long careers, let's go to the contest. All right. I asked you, what was the last space flight of an astronaut who had been an astronaut in the Apollo program? And who was that astronaut? And why did I keep using the word astronaut over and over again? I didn't (laughs) ask you that part. Just the other part. Oh, how'd we do, Matt? And you did specify in the Apollo program, you said nothing about him going to the moon. Ian Jackson in Germany, tricky question from Bruce this week. Maybe he was feeling mean since you scarfed all the ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) That was two weeks ago. Well, only, and I think this may be a new record low, only about 20% or so of entrance in this contest got it right. Wow. Here, isn't that something? Here's the winner. John Guyton in Australia. Another Australian listener and winner to the program, although he's a first-time uh, winner as far as I can tell. John says that, well, he actually asks, was it Vance D. Brand on STS-35? He was in the Apollo program but didn't fly until Apollo Soyuz, Bruce? Yes, that would be the answer I was looking for. Vance Brand flying in 1990 on STS-35, Columbia, as uh, the commander of that mission. Uh, He flew on Apollo Soyuz and three shuttle flights and was, depending on where we go in this discussion, the only (laughs) Apollo astronaut to fly post-Challenger. Did you hear that? I'm sure that I could hear thousands of head slaps, forehead slaps. <laughs> Don't hurt yourself out there. <laughs> why were we why was I eating ice cream two weeks ago? Because John has won himself 
that coupon for a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I hope it's good in Australia. <laughs> I hope they have Ben and Jerry's there. I hope it's exported. Anyway, uh, he might <laughs> want to try Boots on the Moon, Moon, that uh, terrific flavor inspired by uh, the Netflix series Space Force, which I'm still watching and enjoying. I haven't made it all the way through. And a Space Force spoon. At least you can enjoy the spoon, John, if you can't get the ice cream. <laughs> Seems a shame, though. Uh, would be a shame. Devin O'Rourke Brand was born in Colorado, another Coloradan represented in space. Love it. You might be able to tell Devin's from Colorado. <laughs> and this from Bob Klain in Arizona nearby, who was among those, the 80% who got it wrong. But he added, do I get bonus points for knowing that John Glenn was the last Mercury astronaut to fly? Do I get extra bonus points for knowing that John Young was the last Gemini astronaut to fly? Do I get even more bonus points for knowing how to spell Matt correctly? Uh, no, no, and yes. Oh, good, good, because I'm going to give him 15,000 bonus points for getting my name right. <laughs> as long as we're feeling spirited, I'll, I'll give you bonus points. Uh, three for each of the other answers. <laughs> okay. All right, we can move on. Kind of remembered I forgot to discuss this with you, Matt, but what do you think of this question? Something a little different. Make up a light sail joke. <laughs> Why not? I figured... Matt and I would we judge it on humor. Uh, I will probably look for a lack of egregious technical errors, other than a proper proper humorous context, and whatever else crosses our mind. But that's it. Make up a light cell joke. Uh, go to planetary.org/radiocontest. You good with that, Matt? I am just fine with that. This kind of question, uh, getting people to be creative, long overdue, in my opinion. Uh, you've got some time to uh, come up with your light cell joke. In fact, you have until. July 8 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to uh, to get us this answer and win yourself. How about a Planetary Radio t-shirt? Why not? Yes. We haven't done one in a while. It's that beautiful design from Chop Shop. And you can go to chopshopstore.com or planetary.org slash store, I think it is. Anyway, that's where the Planetary Society store is. And you can see that shirt and all of our other great merch. I had a question. Are you going to mail the ice cream to Australia? <laughs> well, they got it to me, as I mentioned, with dry ice, and that worked. But I'm guessing because the Planetary Society is just a poor nonprofit and we ship by sea turtle overseas. <laughs> That's true. It depends on currents as to when, when you actually receive it. Yeah, and the dry ice might be uncomfortable for the sea turtle anyway. Oh, so. well, they have a shell. Well, no, we don't want to take any chances. We'll just send a coupon instead. All right. In a fit of lack of creativity, hey, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky and think about <laughs> sea turtles and ice cream. Thank you and good night. <laughs> I bet those are two terms that have never, ever been spoken together before, sea turtles and ice cream. I guess maybe there's mock, I'm Ben and Jerry's mock turtle ice cream flavor. <laughs> mock turtle. Good one. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, and you probably know he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who celebrate all spacefaring nations. Can you join us? Visit planetary.org slash membership to learn how. Mark Hilverde is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme. 
which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Stay safe and well. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.